0: Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. Last week, my wife and I on Sunday were in the Dead Sea, floating. We we, uh, finally made our trip to Israel. I told her that I would take her as soon as I retired. So we were supposed to go last May, and we were supposed to go the May before that but for reasons that I'm sure you could guess, we didn't quite make it. Now, I was not going to tell this story, but since Graham is sitting at the back of the room, I'm going to talk about him. Graham was on our trip, did a wonderful job, but we were at the, sea of, we were at the Jordan River, and about half of our group was getting baptized. So we had this long line of people, and Doug, Cecil, was baptizing. Now, at the Jordan River, You pay your 11 bucks, and they give you a robe to be baptized in, okay? So Doug is down there dunking them all into the water, doing a great job. And for some reason, these three women get into the back of the line. We didn't know who they were, but they figured, hey, people are being baptized. We want to be baptized. So the last person of our group to be baptized was Graham, McMillan, who is sitting in the back of the room. So Doug baptized Graham and said, you've got the next three. (laughs) They don't speak English. And Graham obviously wants to know that if I'm baptizing you, do you have a profession of faith? One of them knew English, so through that one person, he asked the others the questions. And he did a magnificent job of asking them, do you know Jesus? Have you accepted him as Lord and Savior, et cetera, et cetera. And so he would baptize them. Now, the three Russian ladies had not got the memo, though, that these nice gowns are rather translucent when they get wet. All of our ladies had their bathing suits or something on underneath them. So for the rest of the trip, we were talking to Graham about baptizing the naked Russian ladies. So <laughs> so we discussed having a slideshow in church, but anyway, he did a magnificent job of making sure they understood the gospel message. We return today to 1 John. Today, if life goes well, we're going to make it through three verses. And that's all. Because it's three, there are three verses that I have spent a lot of time arguing with myself about for the last, well, four weeks. So we are going to pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God the Father abides forever." Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be worldly. In here before, I have quoted a, um, it was actually an editorial written by A.W. Tozer, and the book that is a collection of his writings uh, has the title of the first article. The first article is titled, This World, Playground or Battlefield? And he makes the observation, and he's writing this at... um, the middle of last century, his argument is that if you went back to, say, the founding of our country, every preacher, every preacher would tell you that this world is a spiritual battlefield. There are forces of good, there are forces of evil, and these are at war with each other. The world in which we live is a battlefield. But, he says, in modern, and we're talking once again the middle of the last century, in modern America we have decided that the world is not a battlefield, but rather the world is a playground. We are here to have as much enjoyment as we can without getting into serious trouble. And then when we die, we'll go to heaven, which will be even more fun. And we have rejected the idea that this world is something that is leading us astray, that is getting us in trouble. We have become worldly, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. Notice he doesn't say it's a good idea not to be too connected to the world, he is issuing us a command that says, do not love the world. So the first thing we have to address is, what is the world? Because we know, right, that John 3.16, that we all quote, for God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son. So, if it's okay for God to love the world, why are we commanded to not love the world? What is it about the world that gets us in trouble? The Greek word that is used here is the word cosmos, from which we get the word cosmos. Okay? It's pretty simple, except the Greek is spelled with a K and we spell it with a C. And it's a very broad term, and it's used 185 times in the New Testament. And yes, I did read every one of them. I actually discussed with myself of going through every one of them and taking a couple of months to do that. But I didn't do that, so I went through and I got a dozen or so of them and said, okay, I'll talk about these. And then I'd realize we'd only be here for two weeks. So I've got about four or five of these verses that we're going to talk about. The word cosmos is a term that is used in several different ways in the scripture. But in the context of this verse, the word is used to mean the world and the world's way of doing things. And what we're going to compare and contrast is God's way of doing things and the world's way of doing things. That's the contrasting, that's the comparison that we're going to make. So, turning over to the book of John, okay, uh, let's start at verse, in the first chapter of John chapter, uh, let's see, what verse are we looking at? The true light, this is verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Quick question, who is this light? Jesus. Remember, John, the book, starts about like John, the letter that we began, which is in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus. So, The true light, which gives light to everything, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Let's take that verse and just tear it apart for one moment because it tells us three things that we need to know. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world did not know him. This verse actually contradicts a lot of modern ideas. Let's take the middle phrase. God, he, the word, came into the world, that's the first phrase, and he created the world. The first thing we need to know about the world's way of thinking is that it does not acknowledge Jesus, God, as a creator. If you've remembered, Carl Sagan had a uh, series many, many years ago based on a book he had written called Cosmos. And there's a famous line that is from the book and the video. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. What is he saying? He's saying the material world is all that exists. This is naturalism. The idea that if I can't touch it, if I can't see it, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. If science does not prove its existence, it didn't happen. What is the first thing we learn about the world's way of looking at things? There is no God. So John in his gospel tells us Jesus created the world. So we have just looked naturalism in the eye and said, no. Naturalism does not explain the world in which we live. First phrase. Jesus, the Word, came into the world. Okay? What do we learn from that? That there is a creator, there is a created thing, and the creator came into the created thing, but the creator is separate from the created thing. Now, if you're a good pantheist, you believe that, well, God is everything. God is in all of us. God is in nature. God is just connected with the world. The fact that God is separate from the created world says that pantheism is not the right path. It says that there are two realms that we need to deal with. There is the created order And there is the spiritual order. There is a God who is separate from the world, the cosmos, that you and I are every day acquainted with. But what's the third phrase of this verse? But the world did not know him. Okay? There are lots of analogies you could use here. Let's say that you go to a play. Thursday, my wife, next Thursday, my wife, two of my daughters and I are going to a play. We're gonna go see Music Man with Hugh Jackman in it. Ooh, okay. Music Man was written by somebody right? Let's say that that somebody, he's dead, but let's say that that somebody was alive and he happened to come into the theater. Would I recognize him? No. I don't know who he is, okay? That would be the creator coming into the theater but not being recognized. Jesus, who created the world, came into the world but the world did not know him. Why would I not know, if he were still alive, the, the writer of Music Man? Well, because I'm not at all interested in knowing who it is. Okay? I mean, I could have gone and looked it up. I have actually done that before. But I don't need to know that. But the Scripture tells us that the world does not recognize Jesus because the world does not want to recognize Jesus. You could read the rest of this passage, and it says he is the light that came into the world, but the world rejected him because the world loved the darkness. The world loved being worldly. You go to Romans chapter 1, and you see that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, but you and I choose him to put on our blinders and look at the created thing rather than the creator. So, what is the world? The world is that which stands in opposition to God. It is that which rejects the existence of God or accepts the existence of a God, but it's the existence of a God that's not important. That it is a God that, well, has no effect on your everyday life. And 1 John chapter 2 tells us: do not follow that world. Let's quickly go through a couple of more verses just so we can say we did it. Um, John 14:7. Um If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. Nope, that's not the right verse. We'll go to the next one, because this one's even better. 17, 16, and 18, which tells us, they are, this is Jesus, remember, praying for us, for the disciples and for us. They, us, are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me, Jesus, into the world, so I have sent them, us, into the world. What is this telling us? It's telling us that Jesus came into the world, but he isn't of the world. In the same way Jesus sends us into the world, but we are not to be of the world, then why are we here? Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to pay the sacrifice for our sins so that we could be saved. We are here to communicate that message to the world in which God has put us. So in the same way that Jesus is in but not of we are called to be in but not of the world in which we live i mean have you ever had this thought before i have what if one day you accept jesus christ as your lord and savior and poof you go to heaven i mean what's the point of sticking around here right just I'm in. Let's go to heaven. Paul actually wrestles with this. For me to live is Christ, to die as gain. I don't know which is best. But you know what? We don't get to make that choice. God has left us here for a purpose. So, The dilemma that we are in, the dilemma in which we live, is that we are in the world. We are in the world's way of doing things, but we are not to be of the world's way of doing things. Back to 1 John. Do not love the world or the things of the world. We'll talk a little bit more about the things of the world in just a moment. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You've seen a series of this kind of statement so far in John's letter. Remember, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you are not telling the truth. This is the same format. If you love the world, you don't love God, period. Now, This is what produced my dilemma. It would be so easy, wonderful, piece of cake, to talk about those people out there and their worldliness. Can you imagine those people out there? I mean, I was reading an article just yesterday, Wall Street Journal, You know what the hottest selling vehicle is? I mean, as far as price going up, minivans. One of the Kardashians drives a $400,000 minivan. Let's talk about them. $400,000 for a minivan. It would be so easy to talk about them. Or let's talk about the Christians that aren't in this room. That would be fun, too. We could do that. But you know, John is writing this letter to us, to us. He's writing it to me and telling me, do not love the world. And if you do love the world, you're not loving God. That's pretty strong stuff. I mean, you remember the passage, right? You know, you can't serve two masters. You're either loving money or you're loving God. Pick one. Well, come on. Let's, let's see. Let's find that sweet spot where we can do both. I mean, right? You draw the Venn diagram, and you know there's that sweet spot where I can love money and still love God, or I can love the world and still love God. Let's find that sweet spot. And John is telling us there is no sweet spot. The love of the world drives the love of God out of your life. That's not my opinion. That's just a fact. Do not love the world or the things of the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not Present in your life. And once again, he's writing this to Christians. You read the rest of this book, and it's very clear. He is writing to Christians, and it's probably writing it to some mature Christians. You know, it's not like some of Paul's letters where he starts blasting them for all the wretched things they're doing. He's warning them, he is warning us to avoid the things of this world. So what are the things of this world? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, this word desire can almost be too easy of a word. You go back to a good old King James, and it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Because the word desire here is not just, I would like to have some ice cream in a moment, okay? It is, in fact, An inordinate desire. What is an inordinate desire? It is a desire that is outside the bounds of what God has ordained for us. For example, we desire food. And you know what? That's a good thing. Why? Because you need food in order to survive. So God, in his graciousness, makes the consumption of food a pleasant activity so that we can enjoy the blessings of God in our lives. And I might add, you go to Israel, they have this great buffet every evening at the hotel, all this food, and you sit there and you think, I'd really like a taco. (laughs) Because that's what, you know, you're used to. But that's okay. But what if you desired more food, and more food, and more food? What if you got to the point where you were consumed by finding, about finding more food? There is a word in the scripture for that. It's called gluttony, right? Right? So the desire for food is good and godly. The inordinate desire of food is gluttony. You have a desire for rest. I went to bed at 8 o'clock on Thursday night, and I do not remember what happened at 8.01. I don't which is just bizarre for me because I'm one of those people who lies in bed for 45 minutes trying to figure out all the problems in the world. I didn't do that. Why? Because I had been awake for 48 hours prior to 8 o'clock on Thursday night. I was tired. I needed rest. And you know what? That's a good God-given desire. In fact, You have a longer discussion. You can see the whole idea of the Sabbath day is a rest. Rest is good. But what if you only want to rest? You only want to sleep. You become what the King James would call a sluggard. It is the sin of sloth. And no, that's not a creature that moves real slow. Although the creature that moves real slow is called a sloth because it is slothful. (laughs) Now, but what do we normally think about when we talk about the desires of the flesh? We think about sexuality. And once again, sexuality is a great and wonderful thing that God has created within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. That is the desire that God has created and the means that he has created to fulfill the desire that he created. But what have we as a society decided? The more the merrier. If having sex with one woman is good, having sex with 10 women must be 10 times as good. No, it is an inordinate desire. So when we see the phrase desires of the flesh, what we're talking about is not God-given desires fulfilled in any way we deem appropriate. It is God-given desires fulfilled in the way God has ordained that they be fulfilled. And I might add, the world today, the modern Western world, has rejected the idea of biblical sexuality. In fact if you leave this room and go into a secular environment and begin to preach biblical sexuality, they are going to think you're a wacko. They will. I told you, I read a book a year and a half ago, uh, Christian Ethics, a very short introduction. That was the title of the book. Written by a non-Christian. And the first two chapters of the book is about the fact that why do we even talk of christian ethics because christians don't have any ethics why because we reject modernity's view of sexuality how ethical can that be now he went on then to discuss what the bible says about sexuality i mean ethics etc but that is what the world has adopted Now, here's the bad thing. That's what many in the church have adopted. Many who are Christians have adopted a view of sexuality that is more in line with the world than with the understanding that God has given us in the scripture. Now, it's not just sexuality It is anything that puts primary emphasis on the satisfaction of my fleshly desires over against the spiritual needs and desires that God has created for us. Remember, back to the verse in John that we started with. The word Jesus came into the world. Jesus created the world and the world did not know him. What did we say that told us? There is a separate world, other than I mean, a separate thing other than the created world. And we as believers know that to be the spiritual realm. So you go read in the book of Galatians, remember? We just went through Galatians a couple of years ago, and there's the fruit of the spirit that we all want to talk about, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But right before that is the list of what? The works of the flesh. And what does the verse two verses before that say? Put off the flesh and pursue the spiritual. When I give in to the desires of the flesh, I am rejecting the spiritual reality of life. Do not love the world or the things in the world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. Why? Because the love of the world drives out the love of the Father. The satisfaction of the flesh above all else drives out the spiritual fruit in our life. It's just a fact. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Paul tells us we are to put to death the desires of the flesh. In the King James Bible, it says mortify them. That's why you go back and read, say, the Puritan writers, and they will talk about the mortification of the flesh, the mortification of sin. What do we do? The world is the playground. We enjoy the fun, and then we go to heaven, and we have even more fun. What are the things of this world? The desires of the flesh. There is a physical world, and there is a spiritual world. That's why C.S. Lewis calls us human beings amphibians. Why does he do that? Because we live in two worlds. We live in the spiritual, and we live in the physical. Which one is supposed to have the highest priority? That's easy. Biblically, the answer is the spiritual world. But you'll go home and you'll turn on your TV and every, every, every commercial that you will see will tell you to satisfy the desires of the flesh. And you know what? That's the world we live in. But it is not the world that we are supposed to be of. We are in but not of the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, this carries with it the idea of coveting, covetousness. I see something and I want it. I want it and I demand that I get it. And I get mad if I don't. And who do I get mad at? God. I get on the airplane to fly to Israel and you know what? I walk through all these really nice seats (laughs) on my way to my cramped seat at the back of the plane and what do I have? Desires of the eyes. I want that. Let's go back to the commercials. I can use commercials as an example because every one of us is intimately familiar. I have become, just in the last five years, more aware of the stupidity of commercials. I don't care what kind of car you drive. The hot smoking women are not gonna come running after you, guys. It's just not going to happen. Yet we've bought into that connection that the desires of the eyes need to be satisfied. The desires of the flesh need to be satisfied. And if they're not, it's somebody's fault. Whose fault is it? Well, if you believe in God, it's God's fault. If you don't believe in God, it's society's fault. It needs to be fixed. But how do you fix it, really? There's this biblical word called contentment. I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. But we don't like that. The world doesn't want you to be content. It wants you to want more. How much more? Just more. Just more. And more, right. A friend of mine and I had a discussion 20 years ago about the American dream. And. I made the comment at the time, the American dream is not some standard of living. The American dream is more. I mean, you go back to the 50s and look at the American dream, and it's a 1,300-square-foot house, it's one car, one black-and-white TV, and you're done. You know what? Every one of you in this room could have that. But if you did have that, you would feel that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes were not being fulfilled. Number three, the pride of life. What is the pride of life? You should see what I've accomplished. I've done great things. I have conquered the world. I have, I have pride in what I have accomplished. Our society teaches us, no? The world teaches us that I need to be proud. I need to let you know how great I am. The Scripture has... A huge number of verses dealing with the subject of pride, and none of them are good. Why? Because pride is what allows us to look at God and say, I don't need you because I can do it on my own. I can do it my way. Guess what? Jesus did not come into the world to allow you to do it your way. He came into the world because you and I are lost, helpless sinners who cannot in any form or fashion accomplish our own salvation. I don't care which political party gets in office, what laws they pass, they will not bring salvation to mankind. Why? Because they cannot deal with the the reality of human sin. That's why the book of Romans tells us repeatedly, God saved us in such a way that you and I can never boast about what we have accomplished. So, What are the things of this world? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. There they are. Now, I would love to give you a test, but I'm not going to do it because I would fail it miserably. Why? Because we are worldly. We bought into it. And you know what? The love of the world drives out the love of God from our lives. Not maybe, not sort of, not let's find the sweet spot. It drives out the love of God. All of these things are not from the Father, but from the world. The first point was that the love of the world drives out the love of the Father. The second thing is that none of these things come from God the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. You didn't get that from God. You didn't get that by reading the Scripture and coming to the conclusion that God wants you to satisfy all your desires. Now, God has given you desires. And God has given you ways to fulfill those desires. But that doesn't mean that anything you desire is within the will of God. In fact, the world teaches you otherwise. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The third point is that the love of the world is temporary. Do you doubt that? You go to Israel, you go to Megiddo. Megiddo is a huge mound of dirt that they've started slicing and digging down. They have found 27 civilizations piled on top of each other, each one of which thought they were going to be there forever. And each one collapsed in ruins And another layer was built on top, and another layer, and another layer, and another, and another. The thing we need to know about the love of the world is that it is the love of the temporary, it is the expectation that all there is is this world. In this world, you have to grab everything you can get, hang on to it as long as you can, and he who dies with the most toys wins. Guess what? The toys are not going with you. Francis Schaeffer used to say that our modern society, and he's writing this in the 60s, has two primary values. Personal peace and affluence. Affluence is I want more toys, I want more stuff, and personal peace is I want you to leave me alone so I can enjoy my toys. We are not going to step out of the love of the world as long as we do not put our eyes on the eternal things of God your perspective is either on the here and now or it is on eternity. That's all. In light of eternity, what matters? The word of God endures forever. Human beings are going to endure forever, somewhere, in heaven or in hell none of your stuff is going to make the transition. You go to Egypt, and there's this huge, massive pyramid, which is the tomb of the Pharaoh. And in that tomb, they buried all of this wealth because the Pharaoh might need it in the next life. Most of those tombs were plundered within 100 years. We have found one or two of them that weren't. But most of them were plundered within a 100 years. What good did they do the Pharaoh? But we in our focus on the things of this world are really only thinking about the temporary instead of focusing on the eternal. The love of the world drives out the love of the Father. The desires that we pursue are not from the Father, they are from the world. And our focus on the temporary prevents us from seeing the eternal. So here's the question for me and for you. do I have the love of the world or do I have the love of the Father? Do I seek the temporary or do I seek the eternal? And if you have any questions about this, just turn on your TV and watch some more commercials. Okay? They're all about how everything in your life can be solved if you buy this car I know, that's called advertising. The Bible would call it the lie of the devil. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the things of the world. Those are the things that we are to fight against. And I would argue... That if you're not fighting, it doesn't mean you've won. It means you've just stopped fighting. Back to A.W. Tozer's comment about the world being a battlefield or the world being a playground. He said, go read the old hymns. Okay? When you get to heaven, you get to lay your sword down. You get to take your armor off when you get to heaven. But until then, the world is a battlefield. Do we, do I believe that? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to love the Father more than the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.